Howdy. I'm Kate Cavanaugh, and you're listening to The Groundwork Podcast. This begins an exploration of connectedness, looking at our own nature through the lens of nature. Mind, body, and soil. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Groundwork Podcast. I am, as ever, your host, Kate Cavanaugh. Somebody recently sent me a picture of themselves harvesting some cucumbers while they listen to the podcast, which you'll know that I often put a bit in here to find out just where you are while you're listening. And as I embark on cleaning my house today, this Sunday, which is my one of my spaces to listen to podcasts, I just always get curious about where you are. So, you know, send me a missive. We are about to embark on a two-week journey into the dark matter of nutrition and the heritability of minerals and this adventure of looking well beyond what we understand to be the back of a nutrition panel and protein, fat, carbs, and recognized vitamins and how they impact our soil, our animals, our farming practices and our bodies. And we're going to do it through two lenses. This week, we are going to explore the scientific the scientific and the technical aspect of this with Dr. Stefan Van Vliet, who is at the forefront of exploring what he refers to as the dark matter of nutrition. And if that doesn't have you hooked right there, I don't know what will. This was such an exciting podcast, and I encourage you to turn in next week as we explore a more mystical take on how we inherit nutrition through the the generations and through soil and just a, a very different lens on a similar topic. One of the big questions that I think a lot of us have is how do these raising practices that we're employing, whether you call it regenerative or biodynamic, or in the case of Dr. Stefan Van Vliet, he, he terms it agroecological. What do these practices make a difference? How do they impact that Product, how do they impact the plants that we're raising, the animals that we're raising, the soil that we're raising it in? And ultimately, how do those practices have an impact within the human body? When we're looking to tie together this piece between body and soil, whether it's an animal body or our own animal bodies, I think that there is no one that is more at the forefront and the nexus of that than our guest today, Dr. Stefan Van Vliet. And Stefan's work is illuminating the vast array of phytochemicals that occur in plant and animal tissues in a variety of different raising practices and beginning to look at how those might have an impact on the human body. And he calls this the study of metabolomics, and it's a very nascent science, and you're going to learn a lot about it in this podcast. And I think that this really gives us more of a basis to go off of as we 
begin to ask these bigger questions. And I think so many of the, us have experienced this at an empirical and objective level that when we raise a carrot in a certain setting, we know how much better it tastes, how different it tastes than a conventional carrot that we might find at the grocery store. For those of you that work with meat, you know raising practices, as soon as you cut into a carcass, whether it's in the rich jewel tones of the meat that you're cutting or the deep yellows of the fat that you are eating, or just in the the firmness, the texture, the certain je ne sais quoi that is there. And so this is giving a language and a scientific inquiry to define some of those things and the effects that they might be having. And I think that Stefan's research is just incredible. I was so honored to get to sit down with him. And so I know that you're going to love this podcast. And if it really lit you up the way that it lit me up, may I just ask if you will share it on social media or head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and a review. Uh, Those help people find this podcast and recognize that it has some value to give. And in that same vein, just a little bit of housekeeping, I offer this this exchange in order to better connect where if you leave a review on Apple Podcasts, I'll send you a little, a little snail mail note. If you just shoot me a picture of that review to kate at groundworkcollective.com or shoot me a message on Instagram, then we can connect that way. And I get to give you a little piece of gratitude in return. And I can't tell you how grateful I am that you are here and listening to this podcast. It really means the world to me. This is my passion project, and the deeper I go, the more passionate I get. And so there's a lot more on the front. So in that that same vein, I'm going to read a review of the podcast. This is from Abby. It's titled Perfect Podcast. I absolutely love this podcast. Kate has a way of speaking that makes you feel like you are there and listening to friends. The Lacey Jean episode hit home and I immediately sent it to a friend and my mom. In the Josh Curtis episode, she had me with the quote about love in the beginning. Such a fascinating way to see a new side of a human you spend so much time with. I loved the idea of podcasting with your husband. The first episode I listened to was the Ed Robertson and I immediately followed the show. Absolutely fascinating. Thank you, Kate. Abby, I can't thank you enough. You just named some of my favorite episodes and that the episode with Lacey Jean, who just blew my mind and my husband, which was really close to my heart to get to share that episode with the world. I really appreciate that you found value in just two of my most near and dear episodes. So thank you for leaving the review and please shoot me a message so we can get you, I can get you a little letter. And with that, I just want to start us off in this road on the dark matter of nutrition. I did something this week that's a little bit different, and I included a couple of the other podcasts that Dr. Stefan Van Vliet has been on. And I'm going to do this every now and again. One of my aims with the podcast is that I'm not repeating other interviews that are out there and that I'm trying to add something novel and different within this context. But 
sometimes it may mean that you want a little bit more of a guest. And so I want to include the resources and sort of share the love of other podcasts that I enjoy and get value from. So you guys, you're, you're just dying. I know you want to hear about the dark matter of nutrition and I want to share that with you. And so here is, here is the man, Dr. Stefan Van Vliet. Perfect. Well, I'm just so happy to be here with you. And I've been following your work for, I think, the last year or so. And it's just made such an impact on the way that I view the realm of nutrition. And so it, it's it's a pleasure to get to speak with you in person. And I wondered if we might just open up with, I'm so curious how you came into this work where you're looking at nutrition and the health of land and soil and animals and humans and sort of where all of that intersects. And so wonder if we could just start by talking about how you got here. Yeah. So it started early, the interest in, in food systems and nutrition. Um, I grew up in the Netherlands, which is a small country in Northwestern Europe. I grew up in what's, what in the U.S. would be called the suburb of uh, Rotterdam, which is our second largest city. It's a port city. But I grew up very near to agricultural land, so even as a kid, I'd you know we'd get our food from from local farms, or uh, even later on, uh, I would get uh, my milk directly from a farmer. So I was always connecting with farmers, and it was always you know very interesting to to, to learn about that and uh, about uh, how food is grown, how it is produced, and um, so that's where my interest started. When I was uh, 18, I, had to, I went to college, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I got a business degree. I thought that would always be handy, and I'll just go into business, and you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. And I started to develop a big interest also in exercise, lifting weights. And within that, you know, food is very important if you want to maximize uh, your, your hypertrophy and, and, and performance. So I was able to sort of shift my, my work into that and focus on, on physiology and muscle biology. Did that on humans for, for a long time and, and still do. But in, in that work where we're studying various protein sources, such as whole eggs, egg whites, milk, beef, and we were seeing these different responses uh, that were not per se predicted only by the amino acid content. It was impacted by the fatty acids and probably the bioactive compounds, which is the other 10,000s of nutrients in foods that do not appear in your nutrition facts panel, but they can impact nutrition. And we were seeing that there was an effect for these bioactive compounds in the food on, on metabolism, on, on how our muscles renewed in, in, during my PhD in, in Illinois, this was. And then I got sort of interested in, in, well, what is an obvious way to increase those things in the food is by the way we produce our food, whether it be plants, uh, the way we grow them and uh, first animals and how they are raised, right? That's an obvious way of, of increasing that because the saying you are what you eat eats or you are what you eat is also you are what you eat eats, right? The, the yes. animal, the animal consumes makes a big difference in the nutritional profile. So I always had this interest in uh, linking agriculture, human nutrition. And when I was in uh, uh, doing a postdoctoral training in Duke University School of Medicine, I was able to sort of pursue my own interest there. And that's where I really started this line of research and, and connecting with farmers, ecologists, agronomists, and starting to do the systems research where we're taking it from, from soils to uh, uh, plants, animals, and then in the lab in, in, in human nutrition. So I'm originally trained as a muscle biologist, a muscle physiologist, and uh, we profile compounds in human muscle 
if you count profile compounds in the other mammalian species, such as cows or goats or sheep, you actually see these, these parallels in metabolic health. And these metabolites, many of these can serve as nutrients for us, but they are impacted by, uh, by the health of the animal. So, yeah, I was fortunate enough to kind of push my research in that. And currently, I'm an assistant professor at the Center for Human Nutrition Studies at Utah State University uh, within the College of Agriculture. So there's a, yeah, a big support for this type of research. And, uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm happy in my new position and uh, just continuing the work. Well, I think it's fantastic. And you mentioned something that I think is so important, which is that there are all of these parallels. I think that I certainly have seen as a farmer between soil health and human health and animal health and how they they all sort of interconnect. And that's one of the biggest things that I want to explore here today. And in order to do that, I wondered if we might just define a couple of concepts that I know are going to come up so that people have some definitions at the front of this. And one of the first things that I want to define is metabolomics and what that means. Yeah, metabolomics is the study of metabolites. So it's a, it's a fancy word, but uh, you use a mass spectrometer for it. What the mass spec can do is it can identify many unique compounds within any biological sample, whether it being soil, it being uh, a plant, animal, human, uh, or even in a rock or things like that, right? You use that uh, too. Mass specs are also often used for drug testing of athletes because you can detect unique compounds because they have unique molecular weight. So we use it to uh, characterize metabolites. Now, metabolites are intermediates or end products of metabolism, whether it be metabolism of the plant, whether it be metabolism of the animal, metabolism of, of, of the human. Many of these metabolites can serve as nutrients to us. So all nutrients are metabolites, but not all metabolites are nutrients. And we must also be realistic that animal, right, animal-sourced foods, they contain certain metabolites. They are not produced to nourish us. Some of these have nutritive value to us, right? Fatty acids, amino acids, uh, polyphenols, uh, um, terpenes, and other phytochemicals. We can obtain nutritive value from that. But first and foremost, it is something that is related to either the metabolism of the animal or obtained through their forage. So... When we study this, we typically study, uh, yeah, a couple of thousand compounds when we really go all out and use like four different types of machines and look at lipids and, and phytochemicals and other nutrients. Um, so we're really looking at sort of the whole food matrix and doing this in, an, in a holistic way. So as a consumer, if you pick up a package of food, right, you, you see 13 nutrients appearing on that. It would be fat, saturated fat carbohydrates and sugar and uh, protein and a handful of vitamins and minerals. Well, we track about 135 or 150 components in the USDA National Nutrient Database, and we base our food policy on, on those, and that's very important. But foods in their natural state contain thousands, if not tens of thousands, of biochemicals or metabolites that could potentially impact our health and that have bioavailability and and have an impact on our on our health and metabolism, and uh, can either be a positive or, or a negative. So we are using uh, metabolomics to really look at sort of the, what's often considered the dark matter of nutrition, which is all those other thousands of compounds that do not appear on your nutrition facts panel, but that can impact our health. 
That's amazing. And you, you already answered some of my next question, which is this idea that we've reduced nutrition down into, you know, carbs and fat and protein and a handful of vitamins and minerals when really there is this, and I love when you use this term, this dark matter of nutrition that exists beyond that. And one of the the things that I find so heartening about the idea of the whole food matrix is putting it within that context that it can't be reduced. And I think that so often as humans, we are prone to wanting to reduce things into these individual parts without really understanding the whole. One thing I wanted to kind of, to form the basis of this conversation, I wondered if we might talk about the relationships, the relationship between plants and animals and soil. I actually pulled a quote from health promoting nutrients are higher in grass fed meat and milk, one of your papers. And it it says the constant arms race between plants and herbivores has resulted in an extraordinary diversity of phytochemicals produced by plants. In turn, many of these phytochemicals are concentrated in the meat and milk of livestock grazing these plants. Their presence may act synergistically to enhance human health. And I wondered if we might take a look from your perspective at the interaction between soil and plants and plants and animals and how that flow of nutrients works within that system. Yeah, no, that's an excellent point. And uh, first and foremost, I think we often look at this from, you know, from soil to plants, to animals, to humans. But if you look at that system, it's also sort of circularity in that, right? Maybe humans are the ones who are extractive and not so much putting back, but in terms of uh, uh, the symbiosis between soil health and, and plant health and plant diversity is certainly there and it's sort of sort of circular, right? Absolutely, it's cyclical. Yeah, and the same with animals, right? If uh, they uh, are properly managed and uh, consume some of the vegetation, but not all, proper resting period, the plant can recover. Maybe other biodiverse species have a chance to proliferate, right? In turn, improving the soil health, but also the plant obtains its nutrients from uh, the the vast array of life below ground, right? Uh, Yes. The the many microbes and other uh, organisms that are within the soil where the nutrients are obtained from. So in in sort of a, yeah, top level or like 10,000 foot view is what we're seeing the following is that we are seeing these relationships that that farmers often tell, but it's also something we see in our our work. Um, Soils that have higher total exchange capacity or have uh, an increased amount of soil organic matter, higher amounts of vitamin or higher amounts of minerals. They typically also produce more phytochemically rich plants and that has a trickle down effect to the phytochemical richness of the meat. And one project that we did last year uh, and also this year over both grazing seasons is uh, we visiting farmers and uh, uh, farmers that use uh, rotational grazing or some sort of management, uh, basically non-continuous grazing, I should say. There's multiple ways one can do it. But uh, we collect uh, soil samples from these pastures. And then we find the nearest uh, monoculture cornfield, which is usually only a mile away. And we sample soil from that too. And that serves as a model of what would happen if you have animals graze on a pasture in in an adaptive or, or what's often called a regenerative way. Versus if we grow feed for animals and put them through a, a feedlot, right? Somebody, so we are sampling cornfields. And yeah, you, you clearly see that the uh, soil organic matter, total exchange capacity, the microbial life, and the minerals are higher in these 
soils that are managed uh, with, with, with animals versus uh, growing feed that you would then put through an animal in a feedlot. So that's where we see this initial relationship. Then, of course, if we profile the feed, which could be uh, corn-based rations, which are fed to animals in, uh, in, in feedlots, it's usually a combination of hay and corn, versus the plants that we collect from the pasture, then uh, those are more phytochemically rich. And then as a result, when you study the meat of that, the meat is also more phytochemically rich. And it is certainly interesting to see is that, you know, there's, and there's always a sort of a, a, a gray area, right? Like in moderate amounts, these phytochemicals can have antioxidant and anti-inflammatory effects for the animal, potentially also for us. But in, in very high amounts, they may have some negative effects, which is also why some people, you know, experiencing uh, with, uh, I think, some of those things too with, uh, with, with high uh, uh, plant foods or, 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 you know, people with autoimmune disorders, which is something we can maybe go into. But, uh, yeah, the, the short end of it is, is that we have to, what we're seeing is this sort of symbiotic relationship between the health of the soils, the, the plants, and the animal. Whereas typically more nutrient-rich soils equal more phytochemically-rich plants, which then equals more phytochemically-rich meat, which contains various polyphenols and terpenes and carotenoids and uh, flavonols and, and things like that. And I think, uh, yeah, that, that's been certainly an interesting finding that uh, you can detect a lot of these plant compounds in animal source foods too. Are you seeing that same relationship with biodiversity, both above ground and below ground, that on more multi-species farms that have more biodiversity of species, both within animals and within perhaps plants just out on pasture, are you seeing that correlate to biodiversity below ground in the amount of microorganisms or mycorrhizal fungi in the soil? Yeah, that is definitely something we're uh, we're, we're still studying. But um, there's definitely been other researchers. It's that's slight. So I work with soil scientists, but that's slightly out of my uh, area of expertise. But what we do know from broader literature and what we're finding in initial findings too is that yes, if there is one simplified narrative, then it's biodiversity is key. If there's nothing else that people take away from these two, you know, uh, this podcast, biodiversity seems key. Biodiversity uh, is good for soil health. It's good for, 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 for the plant health. And then what we're seeing so far in our work is that animals that are grazing more biodiverse pastures, whether it be, you know, uh, on public rangelands or people use cover crops or, or seed, uh, seed mixtures, that provides more phytochemically rich meat and milk versus grazing a monoculture where maybe there's one or two very dominant species. And then, yeah, on the other uh, sort of the, the lowest phytochemical richness, uh, we see when animals are, are, are fed uh, corn-based rations uh, in feedlots, which is directly related to the to the plants that they eat. You actually see this, this, this is nice work that... Uh, was already shown in uh, in in the eighties, uh, but we were able to replicate it or or find the similar things. Is that when the animal enters the feedlot, you see this this very rapid dip in these phytochemicals. About uh, after about sixty days, you have ha- only half the amount of phytochemicals left, and after one hundred twenty days, you have about uh, a third of the phytochemicals left. So that's what we're seeing in our work too. And yeah, this was already work that uh, that was shown from a, a scientist at, at NC State in in the nineteen eighties. So 
that's uh, that also tells you it's it's the golden rule in science. If you can think of it, there's a big chance someone else have thought of it way before you did, right? And uh, but we're we're seeing this in in you know more more deeper profiling and trying to uh, get some of those uh, those relationships, uh, yeah, laid out and yeah, that's what we're seeing. Yeah, I want to. I wouldn't. I want to dive a little bit deeper into some of those relationships. And I think I was telling you before this, but as a butcher, who's. I mean, I've I've butchered thousands of animals over the last decade. I've had a chance to see. I call it looking at carcass composition from the inside out, and there. And and I've butchered. You know. It, animals from what you would call an agroecological perspective and from a more monocrop grass-fed perspective and also grain-fed animals. And there is something that is that I can't exactly define that is different about that meat. And in talking to consumers over the years, we haven't had a lot of data when they come in and they're like, well, why is grass-fed better, right? We specialize in grass-fed meat at my butcher shop. And so I think it's incredible that you are really elucidating why that might be the case and the differences, uh, not just between grass-fed and grain-fed, but between grass-fed in a regenerative or agroecological setting and grass-fed in a more monocrop setting. And so I wondered if you just might kind of dive into talking about some of those differences. Yeah, no, it's super interesting that you mentioned that you can kind of visually see that in... Uh... Oh, Yeah. Uh, on, on carcasses, I've, I've heard more uh, more people say that. And uh, interesting, a, l- a little side story, but during my PhD, we did a study with uh, hemodialysis patients and also patients with, uh, with with metabolic syndrome. And then we also, during my PhD, we've done a lot of work on endurance strength athletes. And we always jokingly said, because we do uh, muscle, muscle biopsies, so we get a small piece of muscle from, uh, from the outer thigh. And uh, we always jokingly said we can also... Instead of going through all the trouble of doing all the research, we can probably just take a picture of the the muscle and, and publish that and say, "Here, see, uh, there's all <laughs> you can you can just see that the muscle of the endurance trained athletes was so much healthier yeah. than uh, uh, people with metabolic syndrome or chronic kidney disease. You could you could just visually see that, and uh, obviously we still did all the research and uh, indeed course. found that there was uh, you know, and it's interesting that you see some of these parallels between the muscle of, of humans and other mammals being cows or, or, or goats or bison, right? So you do see this, this, this health of the, of the muscle and uh, there's, there's certainly interesting work and uh, that suggests also it's probably a combination of the feet and the physical activity of the animal. Uh, animals might walk several kilometers a day in, uh, in pastured systems. So they typically have a little bit more darker meat, yes. um, more mitochondria in their meat, which is the life of, of, of the, the, the animal, right? Really? Yeah, no, I mean, it's super interesting if you look at it. Like I said, I'm trained as a human physiologist or a muscle biologist. I'm looking at muscle of endurance-trained humans, and I'm looking at pasture-based animals, and they look very similar to each other. Yeah. They look like endurance-trained athletes, pasture-based animals. So, and, and you the, see an increase in mitochondria. At what? Uh, how much of an increase? Um. Depending on, uh, so we look at a lot of uh, the different mitochondrial metabolites, and they're probably, yeah, one and a half, uh, two-fold higher, some of these uh, metabolites. So there's uh, more oxidative metabolism in the, in the animals, and, and so mitochondria are sort of the, the, the or, oldest organism, right? And uh, yeah. uh, sort of the, 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 the basis of life 
of the, of the yeah. cell. And we see higher amounts of this in, in the pasture-based animal, and that could be related to two things, probably related to the physical activity, but there's also so, uh, some data to suggest that higher amounts of polyunsaturated fatty acids also uh, result in higher amounts of these, these mitochondrial metabolites. So it's probably a combination of what the animals are fed and the fact that they have access to, uh, to plenty of physical activity. I think that's interesting implications across the board. And I, I find that piece about mitochondria to be particularly fascinating. I know, you know, you said that two of the things that are really impacting the muscle composition, I guess we could call it our feed and physical activity, which is what we talk about in the butcher world is what impacts flavor, that, that it's work of the muscle, how much it's been working and moving. And you find in grass-fed beef that there is a, there is more flavor and in more well-worked muscles, whether that's, you know, shank meat or gastrocnemius, however you want to call that, or a tenderloin, that those are going to be very different in terms of flavor and then, and then feed, that these are two of the biggest implications for how things taste. And so I think it's interesting that it also correlates in terms of all of the phytonutrients. Yeah, these phytochemicals, right? We, when I look at this from the standpoint of human nutrition, I'm looking at these phytochemicals, I'm thinking, you know, wait a minute, these have all kinds of potential health effects, right? But originally, this was studied in um, grazing systems by French and Italian scientists in, in, in the 90s and in the 2000s. They were looking at phytochemicals from the flavor standpoint, they were looking at, well, how can we graze these different landscapes in uh, alpine pastures or the Pyrenees or, or, you know, Sardinia, right? And how can we capitalize on that and create these unique flavors in our cheeses, which are uh, determined by the phytochemical richness? That's really what, the, but these, I'm looking at this data and waiting, wait a minute, these phytochemicals, yes, but they also have potential anti-inflammatory effects, antioxidant effects. Um, and again, this is something we need to study in humans, but sort of from uh, if we uh, throw these phytochemicals on a cell line, right, like a cancer cell line, for instance, you see that there's maybe a reduction of uh, uh, cancer cells, not to say that grass-fed beef reduces your risk of cancer. I'm not at all implying that, but no, these phytochemicals, they do have, at least in a sort of a very highly controlled environment, they, they can have uh, uh, potent health effects. And now the next thing is figuring out, okay, do they have health effects in humans? And as humans, we eat uh, hundreds of other foods and we do a thousand of other things that could increase or decrease our risk of cancer. So I don't have the illusion that we can ever say like, uh, hey, you know, uh, this type of meat uh, is reducing your risk of cancer. It's maybe associated with it. But I, my, uh, I would suspect that people that buy well-raised uh, meat are also... Uh, smoking less, eating more fruits and vegetables, and doing a whole host of other things beneficial for their health. And that's uh, something uh, important to consider in, in epidemiological research of red meat. The and, healthy uh, user bias. Yeah, I mean, the unfortunate part is, is that we, in, in uh, Western civilization, consume high amounts of red meat through fast food outlets as part of diets rich in ultra-processed foods and uh, uh, over-consume energy. And as a result... Uh, Red meat is often associated also with it, and there's definitely been more work coming out that uh, suggests that if you account for all of these things or study red meat as part in the part of context of a healthy diet, that uh, yeah, these associations may disappear. There was a recent study that came out from the uh, a uh, new analysis from the Women's Health Initiative in, in postmenopausal women. This was about eighty thousand women in the 
in the Women's Health Initiative. And when they accounted for many of these uh, uh, things like high energy, high sodium intake, high BMI, you had these associations of red meat intake with diabetes, obesity, heart disease, various types of stroke. They all, or most of them, became neutral once you calibrated for that data or accounted for that data. And there's many studies like that uh, that uh, have been uh, published over the years. Uh, but people that consume uh, red meat through a, a healthy diet are certainly the minority uh, because, uh, yeah, you know, we consume about uh, 60 to 70% of ultra-processed foods. And people that consume high amounts of ultra-processed foods also tend to consume uh, high amounts of, of meat and processed meat as, as part of these. And, uh, yeah, you do see a change in, uh, in, in associations when you consume it as part of a healthy diet. And it could be a potential where uh, when you consume pasture-raised animal source foods that maybe that has additional health benefits, or at least that, that's what we're seeing. One... One interesting thing to note, and what we talked about earlier with this uh, idea of the whole food matrix or reductionism of nutrients, saturated fat, right? We're always discouraged to eat saturated fat. I can argue whether this is uh, for right or wrong reasons, and different food sources will differentially impact it. I think we're now at this point where we feel comfortable stating that whole uh, dairy can be healthy despite its uh, uh, high saturated fat content, especially consumed as yogurt or cheese. But what we're seeing in, uh, in saturated fat, right, is when people say saturated fat is bad for you, I was like, well, what type of saturated fatty acids are we talking about, right? Because there is uh, saturated fatty acids with, you know, four, uh, four carbon lengths or all the way up to 40, although those ones are, are fairly rare uh, in, in foods. But the longer chain saturated fatty acids, like, like 18 carbon plus fatty acids, those oftentimes get enriched in uh, grass-fed meat. And population-based studies suggest that higher amounts of these in uh, the blood of people are associated with a reduced risk of diabetes and, and heart disease. So whereas perhaps the more medium or the shorter ones, some of those are associated with increased risk. So the type of saturated fatty acid matters. So saturated fat isn't saturated fat. And the food source of saturated fat can impact metabolic disease risk. And those are important nuances, but nuances that do not always uh, make it through the headlines or in sort of simplified narratives of, of uh, increase or decreasing your saturated fatty acid content and it, uh, in, in the diet. And it will also be important to uh, note, well, depends on what sources you eat and, and, you know, maybe focus on these type of sources of saturated fatty acids because it will be, yeah, it was kind of eye-opening to me with the saturated fatty acids that you could see these very long chain ones becoming enriched in the grass-fed meat and milk, and that these are actually associated with a decreased risk. So, again, lots of studying to do there, but that could be a differential uh, uh, risk or a reduced risk when you consume meat from certain systems versus other systems. It's, I mean, I think that we are constantly losing nuance in, in our world and that nuance is important to hang on to and to look at. And I'm curious with the shorter and medium chain fatty acids, do you see a higher content of those in things like grain fed beef? Uh, yeah, yeah, you typically see higher amounts of palmitic acid and uh, stearic acid in grain fed beef and then things like pahenic uh, acid or lignoceric acid, which maybe terms you hear less, but those are 20 carbon or 22 carbon, 24 carbon uh, lengths. You see that those are, uh, it can be anywhere from five to tenfold higher. So, and in, in retrospect, that makes sense. Uh, 
to me. I, it wasn't on my radar until a few years ago either. But if you are, if the animal is on a forage-based diet, consuming plenty of grasses and forages, shrubs, etc., you see this increase in very long-chain polyunsaturated fatty acids, right? Like the omega-3 fatty acids start to become enriched. There's no reason to think that that wouldn't happen to the um, saturated fatty acids either, right? And that's exactly what we're seeing in our data, is that that happens to the saturated fatty acids too. The same thing happens to the polyunsaturated. It makes total sense in the end, of course, right? But that's always how these things work. But to me, it was also kind of eye-opening to, uh, to see that. So what are, when we talk about uh, phytonutrients and phytochemicals, I think generally people associate them with seeing those in plants and that you see carotenoids or tocopherols and, and, and some of these terpenes in plant matter. And so what does that look like in things like beef? Yeah, so you can also detect those in beef, particularly when the animal is on the plant diverse forage, or you can detect them in really any room in an animal, I would say. We've detected them in bison too, detected them in, in milk from uh, grass-fed from grass-fed lamb and, and things like that, and, and cows. Now, I certainly don't want to make clear at the outset that direct consumption of plant foods will be provide much more phytochemicals, and depending on the, on the individual phytochemical. A uh, carrot is a much better source of beta-carotene than beef is. So an onion is a much better source of, of quercetin than, or chlorogenic acid than uh, beef is. But one unique thing to consider is it's, it's a way of further enhancing the phytochemical richness uh, of our diets. And I think this is the unique part, is that animals consume forage that you and I cannot consume, right? Because we don't like the digestive oh, yeah. system. So they have access to unique uh, plants that you and I would otherwise not be able to consume, and it, this could be things like, uh, you know, you get some unique terpenes from things like like sagebrush that a, a goat might browse, or, or some cattle might even uh, 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 consume certain shrubs and forages. Uh, I was in a on a farm, Alder Spring Ranch, on uh, this past Thursday, and uh, it's very impressive. The the farmer herds his animals in in the mountains of Idaho. It's an hour and a half drive through the mountains, and all of a sudden there's a herd. Well, it isn't because you got to find them, but uh, <laughs> you has to find them. But anyway, there's people with them uh, on, on horseback herding these animals. But just looking at the sheer plant diversity that they have access to, and uh, we've tried many of the plants the animals eat, and uh, there was like, you know, wild onions and wild buckwheat and things like that. Just things that are chock full of phytochemicals. You can just taste it. It's like a small leaf of of that onion tastes like I'm biting into an entire uh, red onion. That's that's kind of what it tasted like, right? So, but you see that these phytochemicals become enriched in in the meat, and, uh, and there are certainly also many unique things that uh, we did not try because they would uh, that um, there were certain shrubs and forages that are have known toxicity to us, but they have but potentially also have medicinal effects. The animal consumes them, so that way we are probably able to obtain sort of these medicinal effects, but not uh, uh, have the digestive issues mm. that we'd have with some of those, uh, those, those compounds that could be quite, uh, quite, quite toxic to us in, uh, in, in certain amounts or, or maybe some phytochemicals in that forage might be toxic to us, whereas others might be beneficial to us. And having an animal consume those might be a, a way of, of getting very unique compounds in that could benefit uh, our health uh, potentially. And, and it's certainly interesting if you look at individual compounds, then there, some of these individual compounds do reach the amounts they, that are found in, in plant foods. 
there was some work done with uh, with goats and um, the amount of, of chlorogenic acid and other compounds that are, are rich in green tea. Sure. These were found in, in you know a cup of green tea, sort of some of the green teas at least versus some of the milk were almost in, in, in similar amounts, right? And, uh, and certainly other green teas were, were much higher, but again, there depends on uh, green teas and green teas and green tea, probably the, the way that green tea when those tea leaves are grown, right? You know, by the first manner or so might further increase it. But anyway, we found that there was this, uh, yeah, sort of convergence or, or similar amounts even, which is super interesting. Yeah. And I mean, I, I've, I think that's interesting too. I, I'm curious when you're looking at something like a goat or a sheep that is a browser rather than a grazer and is going to maybe take in a larger diversity even than cattle of plant species, if you're going to see some differences there. And additionally, I'm curious if you're going to see those present in the milk faster, right? That this is a almost more available way of looking at something that you're going to see that milk turnover and change more consistently. But I know just from, you know, as you were talking about this, watching my goats eat things like thistles and, and nettles and, and all kinds of, of plant matter that I wouldn't, I wouldn't dare eat. And so, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, that, that's true. Yeah. 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 That, like nettles and which can have uh, medicinal effects, right? That's a great example. But, uh, if you put it in your mouth, then you're probably uh, going to be quite uh, hurtful. Um, so, yes, you can absolutely uh, measure it in your milk, in your bulk tank the next day. Absolutely. It goes very quickly in milk. What the animals ate the day before has an impact on the milk the next day or uh, 48 hours afterwards. In muscle, in meat, it goes a little bit slower. Um, we've seen some, some of that work that uh, uh, when the animal enters the feedlot, you see this twofold reduction. So it's, it's a matter of, of, you know, what you probably feed the animal the last 60 to 90 days will have a big impact on the phytochemical richness of the meat. Whereas with milk, it's, it's, it's almost instantaneous uh, to do that. And uh, coming back to your, your earlier point is that uh, we often think of, of cows as, as more grazers and, and goats and sheep as, as you know, animals that are more browsers, right? But actually, if you look at sort of locally adapted cattle, they do consume uh, lots of lots of shops and forbs too. For instance, that farm where I was on Thursday, they're in the mountains there, so there's very little grass there, and uh, they they consume about half of their diet comes from shrubs and forbs and and things like that that uh, they are able to capitalize on. And a lot of these have uh, sort of the British genetics, the the Angus or the Hereford. So, but when you know properly trained, or I should tra- trained in the sense that. The animals learn from each other. It's also the in utero experience of the calf, right? What the what the mama cow eats. These phytochemicals are, are transferred probably to the calf, and then the, the calf kind of intuitively knows afterwards. Okay, these are some of the plants I need to seek out, and they learn from each other too. So yeah, that's super interesting. That uh, sort of nutritional wisdom uh, with animals, and uh, sometimes we we think we're the smart ones, but uh, un- unlike. Uh, Non-human animals, we don't. Need, we need to be told what to eat and, and spend billions of dollars on uh, on on that. Um, whereas an animal kind of intuitively knows what to eat and 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 you know, trust instincts and and sort of nutritional wisdom. So, uh, and here we think we're the smart ones, but it's quite amazing to see that uh, the animal uh, in, intuitively knows what to eat. They can also have learned behavior, and uh, that's actually. Yeah. 
That's actually one of my questions for you, but I don't want to lose this in utero experience of the calf and that, that informing intuition, uh, whatever we want to call it, informing the way that it's going to approach eating forage later in life. Do you think that that might have human applications as well? Yeah, to an extent it does, because uh, if you see that, uh, in pregnancy, when women suffer from uh, gestational diabetes, right, that there's poor glucose control in in, uh, in the infant as well, or ele- or it might be born with elevated glucose uh, levels, and it's hard because it sets the the person or the baby up probably for a, a life long of, of struggle or an increased risk of developing maybe diabetes or obesity later on in life, right? So uh, there's definitely work. To suggest that in uh, in, in in humans, um, but I think the strongest data we have is from uh, yeah uh, rodent studies, where absolutely what uh, what you feed the, the the mother, even the father to an extent, but the mother or if the mother develops health issues during pregnancy, that that carries over into uh, in, into the offspring and uh, unfortunately have uh, multi generational effects even yeah yeah absolutely I mean epigenetic shifts and things like that are going to have those multi-generational effects. I, I want to come back to, to this idea of animals' wisdom in selecting foods for themselves. And this was actually on my, on my list of questions for you and looking at your work and looking at Fred Provenza's work at just the incredible precision with which animals can select plants that have the mineral and vitamin and maybe the phytochemical needs that that their body is experiencing and as humans we've really lost this right we have to listen to podcasts and read books and try to figure out what to eat and probably not as a scientist but i'm curious if you have an opinion on if it's possible to regain some of that innate knowledge yeah that's a good question i there's not a lot of data to support that uh, um one thing I'm, I'm thinking of, and it's one of the few studies that has been done, uh, is a study by Clara Davis in uh, back in the 30s. She uh, took in orphans in her, and was able to follow them for like seven years or so. And uh, they had about 30 to 40 foods that they could select from. Uh, the children kind of were able to seek out the foods that uh, rectified their nutrition deficiencies. If a, a child had uh, perhaps a an iron deficiency, it might seek out a little bit more, more liver, right? Which is very rich in iron when uh, uh, there may be uh, uh, some scurvy there uh, would seek out things like, like orange juice or, or, or uh, lemon juice to uh, uh, rectify some of these uh, uh, vitamin C deficiencies. So you can see that children selected certain foods and also had weird combinations, which were, and the main finding is that the health of all these children improved, even though they selected different foods, different days, and different combinations, and what worked for them. So there is maybe that idea, and then if you... I like to read old books, because I believe we can learn a lot from history, because history always repeats itself. It's always interesting to see when you read an older book, and you're like, yeah, we're still talking about the same things, but in sort of a different context. And uh, But when you read older books, that a lot of you know sailors that uh, would all of a sudden start to crave things like you know uh, citrus fruits and things like that. Because they had scurvy, they didn't know at the time what uh, what it was, and uh, so there must, yeah. I mean, we're animals too, right? At, yes. At, at our core, so there, it's unlikely that we're the only species that 
do not have sort of have a sense of what, what we uh, what we need to eat and uh, yeah maybe you know some women during pregnancy start craving things like uh, organ meats or, or oysters or other things like that sometimes you hear of that or, or you know something that's very iron rich and uh, so we must have have some of that but yeah proving that in humans is uh, is is incredibly incredibly hard and and difficult yeah, I, I I knew that that would be hard to prove in humans, but I was curious, and I had read I had read about that study by Clara Davis in in Nourishment in in Fred's book, and just thought that that was fascinating, and and hopefully we can find some of that some of that wisdom. I want to return to this idea of biodiversity because I think that this is really the crux of so many different things, and looking also at the biodiversity of a multi-species farm and how that might change things from your perspective, whether that's in the soil or in the meat. And, you know, I, I, I told you before, we incorporate ducks and geese and, and other things, but I also know that you've looked a little bit at rabbits and their place in things as well. And so I was just wondering if you could speak to multi-species diversity. Yeah, so we, that's, that's certainly true. And, um, uh... One of the unfortunate things that we've done both in animal and plant agriculture is uh, we made giant monocultures and uh, kind of lost that, that species diversity, right? It used to be very common uh, back in the day or even in the 80s to uh, graze sheep and cattle together. And it's very interesting if you look at some of that older work is that, uh, and this was not so much looking at uh, uh, the phytochemical richness or the nutritional composition of the meat, but it was looking at uh, primary productivity. And um, sheep, they, they exploit different ecological niches than cattle can. And what some of that early work found is that if you put uh, cattle and sheep separate, so you essentially split the paddock in, or the pasture in half, sheep on one side, cattle on the other side, they're not as, as productive as uh, when they're mixed together. So you can actually produce more pounds of meat per acreage. Uh, when they are together without actually what, what they were seeing without overgrazing uh, these things because they explore different niches and that's one of the things though also why multi-species grazing can have a benefit cattle they select certain species but leave others that they don't consume right and um, as a result there's some plants may outcompete others and you you sort of reduce biodiversity uh, part of of uh, overgrazing an issue with overgrazing is, is that you're creating a monoculture on your pasture as a result of overgrazing because you uh, don't stimulate that species diversity. So having multiple animals integrated, whether they you know follow each other or are together, is typically a good thing. In uh, we also don't you see this in, in natural ecosystems, right? There's not there's rarely one type of herbivore, right? You see uh, uh, pronghorns, you see elk, you see uh, white-tailed deer, you, you see uh, uh, bison and you know they're in sort of a, the, the same ecosystem and exploit different ecological niches so it's again sort of trying to mimic nature as much as we can obviously using using farming systems and one other thing i think and that's sort of always bothers me a little bit is again we've sort of started to see nature and uh human living and agriculture as three separate entities that need to be kept separate but in fact, I think it's best to figure out a way that we can all coexist. Because one thing, of course, in uh, is I'm very favorable of the concept of rewilding, but we still have to manage that because we have built. You know, it's not like a 
an animal can just freely walk. We've built infrastructure, we've built roads, we've built things like that, right? So that that does need to be managed. And uh, we can try to manage that in a way where we can try to graze livestock and at least try to uh, integrate and leave also wildlife habitat uh, for that. Of course, you're going to have some displacement. And unfortunately, most meta-analysis of studies suggest that grazing cattle is bad for biodiversity, but I think that is also reflective of the way that we have been continuously grazing for uh, the last uh, decades or, or hundreds of years uh, for that really in in North America when we displaced the bison and uh, uh, used these lands to, to, uh, to, to raise cattle on it, but not managing the, the same way, right? Because we just started to put fence around it, get rid of all the predators, whereas the bison were always on the move, finding water, getting away from predators, right? So, of course, if you improperly manage cattle, then you are going to be of detriment to, uh, to wildlife. And uh, it's, it's kind of akin to uh, the nutrition research is that, of course, if you're going to consume red meat as part of ultra-processed standard American diets, then red meat is going to be consistently bad for you. Of course, if you're going to grow raise cattle in a continuous grazing and fairly unmanaged, then yes, cattle are going to be bad for biodiversity, right? So, but there there is a nuance in that is that uh, and you know different scientists have different ideas about it. I try to approach it with a degree of realism is that it's it's likely as omnivores that will continue to eat animal source foods. So instead of abolishing animal agriculture, let's try to. Uh, support ways of agroecology that, that do it properly. And then if that means that we also have to reduce our consumption and then especially through fast food outlets and um, ultra-processed diets, then so be it. But, right, it's, it's, it's realistic to think that we'll continue to consume animal source food. So let's produce these in a, in a way that is uh, uh, with acceptable trade-offs and doing so in regenerative agroecological ways. Absolutely. I could not agree more. And I think, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking about the reintroduction of wolves into Yellowstone and how much that trophic cascade changed the ecosystem and actually increased biodiversity. And so I think that there are methods that we as humans can maybe oversee that do increase biodiversity within these systems as opposed to. It's it's interesting that you mentioned Yellowstone too. And, uh, which is a very good thing, but it also shows you how some of these things can have ramifications. The wolves, they typically don't hunt the bison. They do hunt the, the elk. So the elk population is being overhunted by, by wolves, right? And the bison are able to proliferate. So then you're, again, like, you know, trading. Yeah, so that, that's interesting. I was talking to someone uh, uh, about that the, the other day. who was uh, uh, doing research there, and uh, that, that's something that, that they're seeing. And... Uh, there's this interesting story from the Netherlands too, and uh, we uh, years ago we annexed some all well, red land that was wetlands, but we uh, were going to build houses there and build a new uh, new entirely new uh, sort of city there. It never it never worked. So then we thought, well, now we have this land, let's rewild, and we put a bunch of different uh, like like wild cattle on there. Uh, deer, some some uh, wild horses, but no predators. And of course, they could move a little bit, but they couldn't move that far because we're creeping off the urbanization rate. But okay, we rewilded that in the Netherlands, and we're like, hey, we're not going to do anything about it. Rewilding, right? And as a result, one bad winter, the animal population had blown up because there were no predators. One bad winter, there wasn't any forages. Eighty percent died. 
People yep, were throwing starved to bills, death. yeah, were throwing hay over the, the fence and stuff like that. And there was this big uh, discussion: should the government intervene or should we not? Because we wanted to rewild, so we didn't want to intervene. And so, but that also tells you that we should <laughs> probably find sort of a, a middle middle ground in in that, right? Where we should rewild, we should support that conservationism, but we should also probably have some sort of uh, positive influence on it and try to try to manage that as well as we can wherever it being uh, uh, allow greater movement of animals and, and are able to sort of you know manage that and maybe this is controversial but there's also no reason why we could not to an extent act as, as the predator if we've if we've uh, lost you know other predators uh, so which could be to 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 hunting or things like that, right? So I know it's controversial when you say rewilding and we let the bison population blow up to ten million, but then you know, is there a reason why uh, we we yeah we could not hunt some of that? And those are interesting things, and uh, yeah, almost becoming philosophical uh, discussion at that point. But uh, I think we uh, we are straight from where biodiversity is typically a good thing. Yes. Yes, and if we're in service to biodiversity, then I think that we're going to have to come up with some unique solutions when we don't have large tracts of land, when we don't have apex predators that are managing the movement of things like ruminants across those large tracts of land, and that we're going to have to begin to have more philosophical conversations about what it's going to take in order to raise meat to feed a growing population and to again, be in service to biodiversity. I have this question. I'm curious if you've looked at how monogastric animals and and how phytochemicals upcycle into their tissues. And one of the things that we've been looking at here on the farm is what we feed our animals. And I think we talked about this at the beginning, that you are what what you eat eats. And so when we have something like pigs or chickens that are going to require some exogenous inputs in the form of grains, then it matters probably both, A, how those grains are grown, whether or not they're grown organically, and what that soil looks like if cover crops are used or, you know, some of, if it's no-till, some of these things, as well as some of the anti-nutrients that are going to appear in those grains in the forms of phytates or lectins and how those are going to diminish nutrient uptake of things like zinc and iron in the chicken or the pig that's eating them. I know here on our farm, we soak our grains in some hope that we can can sprout them and get some of those anti-nutrients down. And so I was just curious about your take on monogastric animals and feeding grains yeah that's certainly interesting and uh, they will always require some exogenous input i'd, I'd say some work would suggest uh, and where we're doing some work on poultry now too is that uh, you're better also off feeding vegetable scraps to the animal if you're able to do that because uh, a lot of the peels of uh, i don't know oranges or, or whatever vegetable scrap matter you you do not consume right it's quite phytochemically rich, or stalks of yes. things that uh, yeah that we, that we cannot digest. But uh, the uh, the chicken or uh, the uh, duck can because because of their specific digestive system, right? The gizzard, and, and they can digest much more rough material that uh, that we we cannot do to a higher cellulose content. So I'd say vegetable scraps. There's a, an opportunity for that, um, or waste streams. I know we haven't in the U.S. North America. 
the main waste stream that we feed is from from grain or even sometimes we even often grow grain and feed it to the animal which is perhaps not ideal but if we can look at circularity into uh if you have a waste stream that you have access to or you're able to get fruit and vegetable scraps from uh, uh waste streams that would otherwise go into landfills and i know they've they've done some work especially it's more and more common in uh, in southeast asia and and, and japan where they uh, take a lot of fruit and vegetable waste and, and treat it uh, and then feed it to pigs, right? And that's probably also what people used to do in the past, right? They have chickens and you just feed the scraps to them. Probably unknowingly, people were increasing the phytochemical richness of that uh, in, 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 their, uh, in their meat. And uh, so you, you do see that, that benefit. Uh, but yes, chickens also require a high energy, high protein source. But uh, there's probably something to be said for... Uh, feeding less grains and, and reducing uh, Absolutely. Uh, edible crops that could otherwise be fed to humans and using waste streams instead. It will require a little bit of a rethinking of our food system, right? Because now we typically just put it into a landfill. But if we somehow were able to do uh, to, to capture that and, and feed that to, uh, to chickens, and uh, some integrated farms do that, uh, but I'd say it's probably not happening on a, on a large scale. Where, But there is some interest, and I haven't studied this with chickens, but I... Uh, had an idea, and unfortunately it got shot, shut down, but who knows, we do it in the future. I had this idea of what if we take, in North Carolina, was there, there was a big grape industry there, and the, the grape must, like the, the byproduct, what if we feed that to dairy cattle, and uh, as a way of increasing the phytochemical richness, I wanted to dub it red wine milk, uh, but uh, to, <laughs> to look at the, yeah, I had, had it all figured out, and uh, but no, um, that is a good way, and it's it's, it's not that common here, but it is common in Southeast Asia, in Africa, in countries where they're perhaps forced to do that because they do not have this incredible availability of, of food that we have. And we can be very wasteful here and not starve, right? But in other countries, there uh, is maybe a more of a need for, for, for circularity. And if we can achieve that too, or food waste, if we can try to at least get that to... Uh, uh, monarch asterisks. I think that would be a, a good way of uh, of doing that. And uh, yeah, certainly there are some small scale initiatives that are doing that, but uh, uh, it's not happening on a, on a large scale. And part of this has to do, of course, with the way we, we have it set up, and it require initial additional investments. And it also had to do with the fact that uh, grains they're not as cheap anymore. But fossil fuels used to be cheap. Grains used to be cheap, right? So it's it sort of favored that that system in the past, and uh, after the Green Revolution, where we need to feed a lot of people, a lot of food, prices were cheap on grain, could grow a lot of grain very easily, and we'd feed that to animals. But yes, we're finding out that it's maybe not ideal for things like an omega six to three ratio, right? Which becomes higher when you when you feed grains, and so it's less omega threes, more omega sixes. Uh, it probably has less things like uh, beta carotene and has more. Uh, less of, of, of alpha-tocopherol, vitamin A and vitamin E precursors, and has less phytochemicals. So as a result, indeed, we have reduced the phytochemical richness of, uh, of, of the meats. And we're, we're seeing that also in, indeed, uh, when chickens or, or eggs, or chickens, whether you look at their eggs or their meat, when they're on forage-based diet, and yeah, uh, higher polyphenol content in the, in, the, in the eggs and in the meat. I know we push both our both our chickens, both our meat chickens and our laying chickens, as well as our ducks and geese, and we rotationally graze our pigs. And I'm fascinated that they will take big 
wads of plant matter that they'll kind of juice by chewing and then swallow the juice and just kind of discard some of the the thicker, more fibrous plant material and and just the way that pigs manage on a pasture a little bit differently, but they still require you know that the pasture isn't going to have a high enough protein content, especially for something like a Berkshire or a Tamworth, though we actually don't have to feed grain too. We have some Cooney Cooney pigs and they get no grain and they do really well. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, it'd be very interesting to see what the I don't know if you've ever tested the, the omega six to three ratio on the on the pigs, but uh we have some uh, out for testing right now, and we haven't processed any of the kuni kunis because they have such a longer grow out. You're looking at a two year grow out uh, versus, you know, something that's going to be ready in between six and twelve months on a more conventional hog breed like a Berkshire or a Duroc. And so th- that's something that I'm really interested to do. But I think it actually brings up one of my next questions, which is around seasonality, because if you're seeing this this twofold decrease in phytochemical chemical concentration in grain-fed beef over a 120-day feedlot stay, then I assume that you're also going to see some decrease over winter in animals that are fed hay or fed, you know, something that isn't just fresh forage. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And if you sort of, you know, picture this uh, scale of uh, January, uh, May, August, and then, uh, you know, uh, November or so, then uh, if you uh, draw a line for the for the feedlot, it'd be just be a flat line. In August or in January, the phytochemical resistance is nearly the same. If you look at the uh, forage-based systems, then in January it is maybe like one fold higher, one and a half fold higher than the feedlot system. So it's always higher than the feedlot system typically if you feed some sort of forage, because simply because hay is still more phytochemically rich than than corn-based rations, but you see this uh, increase during the spring, sort of hit this peak, and depending on where you're at, it might dip a little bit during the during the summer if it's very hot, and it might climb back up a little bit again during the fall when uh, some of the cool season grass are coming in. But anyway, you see this this uh, increase during the during the spring, it stays quite high during the during the summer into the fall, and then when the winter sets uh, starts, you see this decrease again in phytochemical emissions and hitting hitting probably uh, sort of your bottom at uh, at December or January. So there is seasonality, which is probably why in the past we uh, slaughtered animals uh, as much as possible after the grazing season. And you see that even with Native Americans, their their hunting patterns were based on, on seasonality, where they would maybe take animals in June, maybe not so much over the summer, it was super hot, and then uh, would hunt animals again sort of before the winter sets in, in the fall, when you know there would be more forages again. Super interesting that... Uh, We've figured it out to trial and error later, but, you know, it's, again, the wisdom that people typically think we find out in science. There was wisdom uh, already in the past, which sometimes is frustrating because uh, it means that we kind of know a lot of the things already. But because it's someone observing that or writing it down in a book from the 1800s, then it's, you know, not reliable or something like that, right? Because wisdom and now we rely on science and, and data. But to uh, another interesting side story is, is that. There's a book from uh, Warren Angus Ferris. It was written in the 1800s, 1840s. And he traveled across the, the Great Plains with, uh, and, and with a group that were hunting bison. So, mm. And he describes in that book, during the, during the grazing season, he describes, he said something, and I'm paraphrasing here, is that the meat was so uh, uh, 
uh, delicious, that it would nourish themselves. They required no plant matter to sustain themselves, and, and it, it had the most rich taste he had ever experienced. In the 1840s, uh, he was talking about phytochemical richness of that meat, which we now find out 200 years later, right? Near 200 years later, it's like, oh, yeah, he must be talking about the phytochemical riches of the meat. So you see that these things are, uh, are, are happening. And again, hitting the peak phytochemical richness in the, in the fall and then during sort of the early summer. And uh, yeah, that's a consideration, of course. But we also, uh, many farmers like to, uh, you know, if everyone's slaughtered in the, in the fall, right, then uh, the, the processing facilities will be quite busy. And, yeah, it's a big bottleneck. So it's a big bottleneck. So there's obviously, we live in modern times, so uh, are there ways around it? We're working on a project where, uh, especially here out west, right, is there's not a lot of grazing during uh, the winter, northwest, um, with sprouting. So it's uh, a big, uh, yeah, uh, sort of what looks like a container, and you sprout forages fresh. So it's still probably better than feeding hay. Uh, so you sprout the, the forages and it comes out looking like a piece of turf, like you would put it, you know, in your lawn, basically. But uh, yeah, you give it to the animals and the animals consume it. And uh, the water is recycled uh, uh, while the grains are being sprouted. And uh, again, we're looking at that. If you only grow wheat, grass or barley, then you're probably creating a monoculture. So it might be bad to have, you know, five different types of seeds in there. Uh, that's what we're studying. But if the, for, if the forage-based actual... Uh, data is any uh, consideration or any indication and i suspect that biodiversity in uh sprouting systems are going to be the the same way and biodiversity is, is better for the animal probably even best if they could somehow self-select a little bit of that too but uh anyway those are ways by which you can maybe you know circumvent some of that seasonality by by feeding some from fresh forages and uh and and maybe some agrochemically rich uh, waste of course you cannot feed too much but even to a ruminant you could feed probably some uh, wine uh, uh, residue right and uh, especially if they become adapted to it and you, and you take it slow uh, you cannot put an animal on 80% corn right away either then they'll de- develop issues probably it's the same here but yeah those are ways that we're thinking about of, of increasing this and uh, again it, it would require a little bit of a, a shift right um, but you know maybe we're one day forced to make this shift. I mean, we're, we're growing a ton of alfalfa here out West. Yes. And you can harvest it three times, but all day, the sprinklers are on Pivots. all day. Yeah. yeah. Morning to night. And, and I'm not sure if, if in 30 years we can still do that. I mean, uh, we're, we're, where we're at, at the salt lake, it's uh, a third of what it was in the eighties, the size of the yes. salt lake, because we're yes. constantly extracting from it. Uh, not from the salt lake, but before it reaches the salt lake. And, and there may be a, a time where we have to, uh, well, we should probably do it now, but there may be a time where we really have to start conserving our water and uh, something like that may no longer be feasible and we need to switch to something else that requires much less water instead of, uh, you know, harvesting alfalfa and uh, feeding that to animals over the winter. So, yeah, those are those are all considerations that, uh, that again, tie in the... Uh, uh, sort of the ecology, right? Because you cannot never see these things in isolation. That tie in sort of the agronomy, ecology with uh, with nutrition and, and animal health. And uh, but but yeah, that that's one way. That uh, one thing I'm excited about is potentially using some of those uh, those techniques, such as sprouting, to provide fresh forages to animals. I'll be really curious to see how that work goes, and also what the setup and infrastructure looks like, just from a farming perspective, of being able to execute that, you know, without it taking just a, too much time. And I, I think that that 
you mentioned something that's incredibly important to me and looking at water in the West, which I've done, I've done one other podcast on and I have another one coming up. And I think that, you know, we're hitting the 100 year mark of the Colorado River Act and how that water is distributed across the upper and lower basins. And I think that it's important from an ecological standpoint to consider how we're utilizing water and how what we're eating is utilizing water, whether that's an almond or a steak and, and what those considerations actually look like also in terms of nutrient density. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult process of course, because, you know, maybe it's not ideal to raise uh, black Angus in, uh, in, in the Arizona desert, right? On irrigated pastures. So, <laughs> but not. you know, yeah, we also have to consider farmers and their livelihood. And, and so there are things, you know, if we're phasing that out, that we do so in a way that we do not have an incredible demise of rural America that we already see. But on the other hand, it's, uh, it's something that probably needs to happen. I mean, in my home country, the Netherlands right now, there's large scale farmer protest and I have mixed feelings about it because on one hand, you're dealing with people, with farmers, right, that see their livelihood trend. But on the other hand, the Dutch government is pushing for more agroecology and more biodynamic systems. So getting animals out on pasture again, right, using circular uh, uh, waste streams, integrated crop livestock systems. Uh, a lot of what the, the pushback against is from the Dutch government is about these these, these monoculture systems, right? We have a, a large poultry and pig CAFO operations that require a lot of external inputs. And that's kind of what we're now thinking like, well, we don't need to feed ourselves. We export a lot of that. Should that be something that we, we should be doing, right? And then the push is like, well, let's try to get animals out of pasture again. It means reduce amounts of, of, you know, reduce number of animals uh, and also stay with, with cows, get those more out on pasture again so that we limit the external feeding inputs. And on one hand, that is great, and it's something we're advocating for. But on the other hand, it threatens the livelihood of many farmers. And um, that's kind of what we're seeing also in, in the Netherlands now with these, with these large-scale protests, that there needs to be a good plan of uh, either helping farmers to trans, uh, transition into agroecology and, and maybe one of the unfortunate things is that we, uh, uh, as one of the first things to uh, uh, reduce emissions, we, we chose farming uh, instead of uh, uh, maybe things like aviation or, uh, or, 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 you know, other fossil fuel intensive uh, or cars and things like that. So that was maybe, uh, we're working on that too, but it was maybe a little bit of a, you know, an, uh, an unfortunate pick, but it uh, it is in line with sort of the, the, the zeitgeist, right, where we... Uh, have very much concerns about uh, we're heavily focused on emissions that's just the way it is i think it's uh, again uh, a it's important but only looking at that is uh, very uh, simplistic and, uh, and and problematic and then you get these yeah you get these weird ideas that uh, growing uh, that uh, locking chickens up in a in a, in a cafo is uh, more sustainable than uh, uh, extensive systems or having animals out on pasture just because they emit more you know, uh, have Methane. a larger amount of emissions. Yeah. yeah. So with the focus on CO2 equivalents, and then they were like, well, we should also probably consider sequestration, uh, biodiversity, uh, water, uh, soil health and things like that. Right. Which are typically not as well managed in a, in an intensive system. But if we look totally at emissions then yeah, I could see why people come to the conclusion that locking a bunch of animals up in a, in a confined system and, uh, and bring them to slaughter weight within 30, 40 days. And uh, it might be a better idea, but 
I think that kind of misses the the, the point, the sort of the broader uh, concept of uh, of biodiversity and uh, ecology. Yeah, I think that there's an aspect of that being a very reductionist view and having this sort of greenhouse gas tunnel vision vision where you're not considering all the other factors that are at play within a holistic system. And I'm I'm glad you talked about that because that was actually something that was on my mind with your being from the Netherlands and, and what your thoughts are on those those protests, which are very prominent right now. You mentioned something that I don't want to lose, which when you were talking about the book by Warren Angus Ferris, you mentioned him talking about flavor. And I was actually curious if, you know, as humans, if, if we're not looking at things through a mass spectrometer, can we <laughs> judge <laughs> phytochemical richness through flavor? And does that also attribute, contribute to satiety, especially when you're looking at nutrient density? Uh, that's a good question. The short of it, I don't know, not in the context of beef. Um, we can definitely taste it, or some people can't taste it, because uh, that's what the uh, the cheese industry, especially the European cheese industry and the wine industry, is based around, right? Like uh, uh, various uh, eco-regions that provide very unique flavors that people can taste. And, and part of that is because of the phytochemicals. So it's a concept called uh, terroir, which uh, in, the, in French is basically uh, means the territory. So you can taste the territory. What, what taste the, the land. Yeah, exactly. So I'm not sure if it will lead to greater satiety. Um, it could be. It could be that if you look at the concept of nutrient density, then yeah, you could argue that there's greater nutrient density in uh, meat from, from forage-based systems because they accumulate more phytochemicals. So uh, those are about two and a half to threefold higher. And those are, I mean, 20,000 compounds probably. We cannot measure 20,000 compounds, but there are, uh, so which is why we're also still scratching the surface of this. We're just scratching a little bit of a bigger surface than has done in the past, but I, mean, I certainly don't want to uh, claim that I have it figured out. We don't, but uh, anyway, we're able to look at you know maybe two, three hundred phytochemicals out of the early uh, twenty thousand or so, uh, maybe more. But um, yeah, I'm sure people can taste that. But um, whether it leads to greater satiety, we're not sure. We're we're doing a randomized controlled trial now where we're feeding people grass-fed beef, grain-fed beef, and then a uh, plant-based meat alternative. And, uh, yeah, we are asking about uh, satiety and how they feel and what they think of the flavor and things like that. And uh, so we'll, we'll see. But that it's a, uh, also sort of, a, yeah, it, it depends what you're dealing with. You know, untrained people, trained people, and, and so there's a lot yeah. of nuances Absolutely. to that. There's but, a lot of objective. Yeah, people can taste some of these uh, these things and... But yeah, it would be an interesting study, a sensory evaluation study in the past or in the future to see if people can taste that and if they feel more satiated after eating more phytochemicals. Um, who knows? I'm not sure. Yeah, it's it's something I know that I've tasted a lot of grass-fed beef in particular over the last 12 years and, and can definitely note differences between these things just from having done this for a a very long time over a lot of different animals from a lot of different farms and ranches. You mentioned that you're working with a, a study looking at, at grass-fed and grain-fed and plant-based meat, and I know that you've also looked at the phytochemical richness of plant-based meat kind of in comparison to grass-fed meat, and I was wondering if you'd talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so we've looked at uh, phytochemical, phytochemical as well. We've looked at many things. We did an untargeted metabolomics assay. So yeah. we uh, looked at uh, uh, 
couple hundred compounds, but there were things like amino acids, fatty acids, uh, biopeptides, uh, carnitines, uh, carnosines, uh, taurine, creatine metabolites, glutathione metabolites. So a whole host of things, but some of those were indeed phytochemicals. What we found was is that there's different phytochemicals in a, a soy-based burger versus a, a grass-fed beef. Some beneficial compounds, especially the soy isoflavones, which could have uh, potent health effects in, in moderate amounts for various people, they did have higher amounts of those, the soy isoflavones, in a soy-based meat alternative. So this could be beneficial. Grass-fed beef had other uh, compounds and other phenolics in it. They were not the same. So it comes back to this idea, if we look at it in the broader picture, is that I am uh, sort of very much in, in favor. People think because I study meat that I'm sort of, you know, on a carnivore diet or so, but it's far, the opposite. It's far from, uh, from the truth. I consume a lot of, of, of fruits and vegetables myself, and I think it's very important to consume plenty of plant, plants in our, in our diet, especially fruits and, uh, and vegetables. But it comes back, but we can also obtain nutritive value from animal source foods. Animal source foods provide nutrients that plant source foods do not provide and vice versa. And probably taken together, we, we make for an optimal diet and the amount of animal and plant source foods you can argue about in varying degrees. But most people fall on the spectrum of omnivory where they do well on including both plant and animal source foods. Plant source foods, uh, higher amounts of, of thiamine, folate, uh, vitamin E, certain, certain uh, phenolics, right? Uh, or overall, they are more phytochemically rich plant foods. But then on animal source foods, we can get you know vitamin B12, bioavailable forms of iron, zinc, uh, DHA, EPA, especially in, in, in fish. But you can also find them in pasteurized animal source foods. And they can actually raise the blood levels of them. And then uh, also very unique compounds like taurine, answerine creatine, carnosine, which are important for cognitive function. They're important for muscle health. They can be important for... Uh, heart health, while these compounds, just like phytochemicals, are non-essential, it doesn't mean that they're not important for our health, right? So, especially for vulnerable populations, elderly, children, in children, uh, especially infants, taurine is conditionally essential, which is why it's added to plant-based uh, uh, breast formula, formula replacement. Yeah, exactly. So these are things, but it's not to say that in older adults, we can also not benefit from that, right? And uh, or even overthrow our adulthood. It's just during infancy, in terms of rapid growth or fairly rapid decline is when we start noticing some of those effects, right? Yeah. Then, yeah we have less, less cognitive function. Could it be because we didn't consume a lot of taurine, answering, and creatine throughout life? Probably did another thousand other things that could result in the cognitive decline, right? So it's, it's hard to prove these things, but at least from sort of the standpoint of physiology, I worry if we start taking those things out of the diet, and just start replacing our animal source foods with plant-based meat alternatives. Not to say that people cannot be on well-designed vegan diets. And for some people, it may work very well. But I'm talking here about like global diets, right? Yes. Uh, where we're like majority of the population. It's not to say that many people couldn't benefit from more eating more fruits and vegetables, unprocessed plant foods. But that's a whole different discussion than, than taking animal source foods off the table. I know I'm digressing, but the short end of it is that we did metabolomics on, on, on the plant-based meat alternative and grass-fed meat. Sometimes they're marketed as, uh, well, plant-based meat alternatives are going to replace meat. There was a 90% difference in metabolite abundance. About 30% of these metabolites were only found either in the plant-based meat alternative or in beef or vice versa. 
So already 30% of nutrients are just completely different, completely different. And the other nutrients or compounds were in, in different abundances, which could again impact the uh, metabolism and health. So the short end of it is that a plant-based meat alternative is not a one-to-one nutritional replacement to meat, despite having nearly identical uh, nutrition facts panels, because the plant-based meat alternative uses soy protein isolate, so same amount of protein as beef, uses sunflower oil and coconut oil, total fat, saturated fat the same, adds uh, uh, synthetic vitamins and minerals to it, or, or soy-like hemoglobin, a source of heme iron. So if you look at these 50 nutrients, you think, oh, they're, they're the same, we get the same nutrients. But yeah, if you sort of peel back the onion layer, then yeah, they are as different as the plant and it. As a, as a plant and an animal food are supposed to be like you know probably as different as a, uh, a soybean and a piece of meat uh, are to be and uh, uh, or, or carrot and an, and an egg are right uh, I would yeah. imagine that uh, uh, so that that's I think is important to note for clinicians food policy makers and and consumers and that was sort of the the, the premise of our uh, of our of our study and of course you know people say well it's a fun course they're going to be different and yes i we didn't know how different they're going to be they were more different than i expected them to be but it is important to find out what 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 are these differences and uh not to say you cannot eat a plant-based meat alternative and be healthy uh you know if you switch up beef with a plant-based meat alternative a few times a week and in certain cases that may uh you know there was a study swap meat trial that suggests that yeah there are it's perfectly compatible with good health and may have some benefits for, for weight loss and LDL cholesterol. So not to say that these things are unhealthy, but we do have to be careful that we should realize that these are not one-to-one nutritional replacements and taking that completely out of the diet, yeah, you know, without uh, adequate provisions may be problematic. I assume the same could be said for lab-based meat, which to me feels like it's even further further removed from the whole food matrix and especially from this idea of of metabolomics and and phytochemicals that are getting into meat via the animal eating and here in a very sterile environment just sort of reducing it to its just a handful of constituent components as opposed to the whole food matrix yeah it will be certainly be very interesting i mean i think uh well i mean you know Cultivated meat is going to be part of the market at some point. Mm-hmm. Plant-based meal term is going to be part of the market. Non-dairy milks have already been part of the market for 20, 30 years, right? So not to say it's not a good thing and that, that it shouldn't be supported. I, 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 I do support it. But we also, I mean, it will be very interesting to see to test cultivated meat versus uh, field-produced meat, if we, uh, that's how we have to maybe say it. Okay. Um, but, uh, I hadn't heard that yet. <laughs> that, that, might, that might, might be the way for lepro meat or for field, field, field ground meat. But it would be interesting to see metabolomics because, yeah, one of the things that we see is like the, what the animal grazes, right, uh, has a 50%, 60% impact on the nutrients that you find in that. How are you going to replicate that in a, in, a, in a cultivator or in a bioreactor? I'm not sure. I mean, maybe there's ways to uh, add some plant material and let the cells soak it up. I'm, I'm not 100% sure. And, uh, uh, you know, it, perhaps it could be used for the good where we uh, can add uh, more omega-3 fatty acids to it. And uh, I could certainly see also the benefits of it. But, yeah, it will be interesting to see. And uh, like, keep an open mind. And uh, But I am excited the moment uh, where we'll be able to profile it to see how different our uh, uh, meat from different systems. 
Yeah, no. I bet you are. I bet you are. I want to I want to get back a little bit to meat. And one of the questions I have for you was whether or not you're looking at older animals. I know that looking at like cold cows from the dairy industry and I know that here on the farm, we wait until animals are older to process them. Obviously, we have that benefit because we're an incredibly small operation and we're mostly raising for ourselves. But like we have a five-year-old steer that we'll process here in the fall and we keep our goats much longer and we eat a lot of stew hens. Uh, Does it stand to reason that you're going to see some of these metabolomics change as as things get older? Yeah, you, you do. It's super interesting because some of the most yellow steaks I've ever seen were from an eight-year-old animal, and uh, it's just, it's it's impossible to comprehend almost how how yellow they are. It, yes, it looks it is. like 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 butter, very deep yellow butter. This is because of the the carotenoids in there, and uh, yeah, we see it in our data too. If we then profile it, and yeah, they have three more full more carotenoids than. Uh, some of the grass-fed meat that was slaughtered at 24 months or so, right? Because uh, it's just a further accumulation of uh, of these these compounds, especially in the fat. Fat turns over very slowly, so it accumulates things very slowly, loses things very slowly, but also accumulates things very slowly. Pros and cons: uh, the the con is, is that uh, if there's like you know uh, heavy metals or other yeah. like, you know agrochemicals in the in the soil, then they accumulate typically in the fat portion of the animal. Yes. Uh, like PCBs and things like that, depending on how the land was managed even 20 years ago, uh, you might still have some of the ramifications. But anyway, a lot of these compounds are, are fat soil, but the fat turns over so slowly that if you give it more time, yeah, it accumulates more and more of these uh, these compounds. And uh, so there's definitely something to be said for uh, slaughtering animals at an older age. And uh, yeah, it's, it's so incredible to see that some of these things that it's just incredibly uh yellow uh orange and uh yeah yeah beautiful yeah they taste good too Uh, it's that that question about is is flavor a part of this you know within that same vein what about organ mates are you are also seeing enhanced or or more compounds within organs which feel like they're concentrated anyway to me yeah yeah they're they're more phytochemicals about uh, five fold higher or so on on average uh, four or five fold higher than muscle meats uh, so organs, yeah, they, they accumulate more of these phytochemicals. And uh, typically the omega-3 uh, content is very high too. If you and, and also the difference between grass and grain fat is, is much more magnified in the organs. Oh, interesting. You might, yeah, you might find maybe like uh, 5 to 10 milligrams of DHA in uh, uh, grain fed meat. But then in the grass fed meat, it might be like 80, 90 to 100 milligrams. And that's where you start to approach the organs of animals. This is liver I'm specifically talking about. Liver sort of approaches uh, uh, whitefish uh, in terms of uh, the omega-3 content. So that's that's wow. certainly very interesting. Yeah, so it's quite quite high. And uh, in muscle meat, we see, typically see an omega-6 to 3 ratio. The lowest, maybe like 1.2, 1.1 or so. So that's the ratio of omega-6 divided by omega-3s. Then in the... Um, Organs in the liver, you see an omega-6 to 3 ratio of 0. 0.7, 0. 0.6. So there's more omega-3s than omega-6s in the liver of grass-fed animals. So you see a lot of omega-3s accumulating in, uh, in, in organs typically. And uh, you also see some in the, in the kidneys, in the heart. I'd love to study some brain uh, because uh, that's where probably it's, it's most richest. Um, but of course, we, uh, we, yeah, we don't consume any brain anymore uh, these days. Uh, or rare in, in, in many cultures uh, to... Uh, to consume the brain of the animal, but that's probably a very uh, rich source, or that is a rich source of DHA as well. And 
it'd be interesting to, with some of the modern techniques to uh, to study uh, the brain of cattle if we ever have the opportunity to look at phytochemicals. There have been people that studied in the rat brain, and yeah, you find a lot of phytochemicals in the rat brain. So um, there's no reason to suggest, yeah, probably in our brains too. I, I imagine uh, makes sense. Find, uh, people that are. Well, here's what I can say. Rats that are on more phytochemically rich diets have more phytochemicals in their brains. It could be that humans eating more phytochemically rich diets have more phytochemicals in their brain. It could be that cows eating more phytochemically rich diets have more phytochemicals in their brains. So, which could beneficially impact health. I know that with bovine spongiform and cephalopathy, it's pretty hard to get your hands on cow brains. But I know that at the butcher shop, we get lamb brains all the time. Uh, just depending on how they they come and how they're processed, and we sell and use them, and so. Oh really? I might have to buy some off of you. Then. It's it's out there, and yeah, yeah, especially also within processing houses that use stun guns as opposed to uh, uh, retracted bulk guns, so that it's not actually putting any skull matter into the brain, which makes it a consumer hazard. So yeah. I. I it's being done and, and there are brains out there. I'd be really curious to see what you came back with. I know that we utilize brains here on the farm, depending on how we process, because that's something that's important for us from a dietary standpoint and yeah, to yeah, use absolutely. and to use I mean, every the, last bit. Yeah. That's, that's the most respectful thing to, to do. Or other people would obviously argue that the most respectful thing to do would be not to consume the animal to begin with, but, but at least once you, you know, if, if you consume an animal, then yes, maximizing everything of it is, uh, is in, in that regard, I think the most ethical thing to do. And uh, yeah, so important to uh, yeah, really, you know, try to utilize everything of, of the animal. And uh, you know, the cheaper cuts, uh, the, the sort of the bony cuts, right? Like they're delicious in a stew or in, 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 when slow cooked. And uh, yeah, they're some of the most, or even like beef uh, cheeks if you if one well prepared oh, yeah. slow cooked oh, yeah. they're very good eating so uh even though it has sort of that uh that, that yuck factor to it with people which uh, yeah it's something we need to consider and uh if, if we're have a yuck factor for beef cheeks then i don't know if we have a yuck factor for some of the alternative proteins too that's uh probably even more so right so uh yeah it, that's uh an, an I, important consideration also i think I think so too. And as a whole animal butcher, I'm a big proponent of that. I'd also be curious how things differed in cuts. I mean, beef cheeks are going to be such a collagenous cut because there's so much connective tissue in that region. And I know that my husband and I are, are big proponents on having a good methionine to glycine balance in our diet and making sure that we're consuming some of those cuts that might that we might not have a taste for in the same way or finding ways in which we have a taste for them. Yeah, I, I you know, I I sort of way I oftentimes eat is is that uh, you know I would buy maybe like half an animal and then it's it's always exciting what uh, we're eating because uh, whatever's sort of in the freezer uh, I can pull out it's like oh we're eating uh, you know shanks uh, apparently uh, tonight that's my favorite so uh, that's that's good and then you know then you don't have to think about it either and uh, same sort of with the uh, local produce right it's like I, I eat what, uh, what what typically is just uh, is, is available and uh, in seasonality. Although having moved to the north, I must say I had to get used to it because till deep in July, all I was I was still getting lettuce and uh, and beets from uh, from and radishes it was the only yep. thing they sold at the farmers market. So uh, I was excited for uh, the <laughs> growing season, and I was like, okay, I can uh, 
get everything for farmers markets again. But uh, now up north, we have a much shorter growing season, so I must uh, I must admit I've been uh, eating a little bit uh, more out of seasonality as I uh, normally do. But uh, now. Uh, being July, it's it's great again. So it's the perfect time for eating, and we I, I we cycle seasonality. We eat more meat in the winter, and we eat more vegetables and fruits in the summer when it's here, and just kind of subsist off of what's available to the best that we can. It's not perfect. I'm curious how all of this translates to the consumer. And I think that this is actually something that I've been really curious about, and I've been talking with some other friends about is how do we how do we drive interest in some of in regenerative or agroecological beef, like the grass fed beef that my husband and I raise or whatever it is. And I think that one of those value propositions is by showing the consumer that there, that there is so much richness and diversity in compounds here. And so I'm curious how you see some of the applications of your work. Yeah, I mean, we try to always make our papers as open access. We've linked up with the Bionutrient Institute where we're starting a database where we put all of our findings just, you know, we'll publish in scientific literature, but it ends up, uh, you know, 200 people reading it. No, maybe not that bad, but, you know. Uh, I think a lot of people are reading your work. Yeah, we try to write it down in a way that's that's easy, and, and we pay open access, even though uh, it means that I have to sell my kidney uh, to pay for it, uh, I uh, happily do it because the open access fees are always like $5,000 or something like that. I didn't that, realize is, that. Yeah, otherwise it ends up behind a paywall. No one can read it. Yeah. It's, a, it's a real shame. It's a, well, thank uh, you. Don't get, don't get me on my soapbox of like the, the publishing uh, 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 landscape in academia. But but anyway, uh, we, we're we working with, uh, yeah, we've linked up with various uh, group one most notably the Bionutrient Institute for a Beef Nutrinacity Project. And the goal is, of that is just also put that data on, on open access where, where people can actually see the data, have a nice dashboard where they can compare across the supply chain, across eco-region. Farmers can decide whether they want to put their name on it or otherwise we just uh, have the county and the state on, on their results. And if we have enough data points across North America, right, and, and, and sort of parse out some of these uh, um, Things that build soil health, and and, and so because we're studying soil in that project, we're studying forage in that project, and we're studying meat in that project from these two hundred fifty farms, and uh, we're still looking for more farmers. So if uh, there's any interest, I would go I to uh, bionutrientinstitute.org/beef or just Google beef nutrient density project bionutrient institute. We'll You'll have find a it. we'll have a link too. Oh, perfect. And uh, so yeah. That's what we're what we're working on, and and that's really something that you know will take a few years to all the data accumulate, but to put it all out there, that farmers can compare amongst the amongst each other, uh, grass fed and grain fed systems, and what are also the metadata, like what are the forages that these animals were fed, how were they uh, grazed, and things like that, so that that is just accessible for people to see, and hopefully this will uh, foster farmers learning from each other. I think that is so key. Is is that uh, this 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 peer to peer learning where Absolutely. farmers support each other because even when I talk to many farmers they kind of want to transition but they don't know exactly how to transition because their father uh, fed grains their forefather fed, fed grains and maybe their father started off with cows their father or their for, you know their grandfather started off with cows their father had uh, uh, chickens and now they have uh, pigs or something like that but sort of this, this grain feeding was the right so it's like hard to break out of uh, of this sometimes so you don't know where to start so having this this uh, 
yeah, peer, uh, network yeah. peer to peer. It's good. And, and I, yeah, I mean, it's sort of interesting to follow this whole scientific debate. On one hand, and almost like it's parallel universes, on one hand, you have this big push for alternative proteins in terms of sustainability. And on the other hand, in sort of existing an alternative, alternative universe, you have this agroecology right in in livestock and then plant agriculture too uh, i must admit because there's uh, certainly uh, we were testing uh, in the fall some berries and corn from uh, uh, more biodiverse systems right yeah um, we, we just started with meat because it's it was just interesting and then hadn't been done a lot of work on it and it was also sort of you know like a big concern of that uh, but we're starting yeah starting other other crops too and uh, tomatoes and you know you name it we have working with a farm that has an integrated crop livestock system that will test about uh, all their meats that come from that, their eggs and their, uh, their, their uh, produce, and then compare it to what we would buy in the store and, and you know, have a database of, uh, I don't know, 50, 60 different crops and, uh, and do that. So we're, yeah, are, we're trying to work on Are you on seeing them. differences before you, are you seeing fairly big, di- are they like no till or use cover crops? So we don't have uh, that data analyzed, unfortunately. So I, uh, I it's coming. couldn't tell you. Yeah, it's coming. That's right. That's on our uh, our goal for the for the fall. But yeah, I mean, a broader literature. There has been some work to suggest that uh, yeah, using more agroecological systems. I mean, people have studied this mainly also in the context of berries, and you do see that you know a little bit of water stress for a berry can increase the anthocyanidins in uh, in, in the berries, and uh, that I'm sure grown in, in more agroecological ways, yeah, my hypothesis would be is that uh, this is, uh, this is the, the, the case. But, uh, yeah, we'll see what the data says. And, uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll, we'll stay tuned. I, I think that's really exciting, and I, I do think that this has a lot of applications. And like I said, I have been talking to people that we need more of this to to just educate consumers about what's possible. And I think that when you're sitting in the system and you feel part of it and you feel part of this rewilding aspect of things, that you can see it and you can feel it. And it's interesting to see uh, a quantification of that of that experience. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us a little... Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say is that, uh, you know, on, on one hand, of course, it cannot be surprising that... that, that health is related amongst those systems, right? Um, if you have, you know, it's important that we have data, but this, this sort of these things that farmers see, like, hey, my animals look healthier, uh, they, they, you know, seem happier, they, you know, more content and things like that, their social relationship improve, my foragers look better, and then um, uh, my soil starts to build more organic matter, right? Uh, so, we're, we're sort of evaluating that. And sometimes we find interesting things. Don't get me wrong. Sometimes we find things that were unexpected. And, uh, but, yeah, generally you see this relationship among soil health and uh, uh, forage and, and uh, animal health. And, of course, animal health and nutrient density are related because, first and foremost, those, those metabolites in the animal, they're there for support the health of the animal. Not, uh, not, not to support us. We can obtain yes. nutrient value from it. And the same from a plant, of course, right? The plants are, the plants are, are not there for us to consume. Uh, right. So first and foremost, their the plant physiology, having more of these phytonutrients in the plant is first and foremost to protect the plant itself. Right. And we can manage that in a way that we can maximize nutrient value from that plant by the way that we grow it with biodiverse soils and nutrient rich soils. 
and maybe if you give it some water, but not overwater it, or, or have some grazing, but not overgraze it, and things like that, right? Um, but first and foremost, uh, it's it's for the plant to uh, uh, defend themselves uh, from uh, from us. Um, but um, where was I? Uh, where was I going with this? Oh yeah, is is that sometimes we do find something interesting, and for instance, we are now have this part of the beef nutrient density project where we have various grass fat and grain fat, and we're seeing this spectrum where I'm looking at some of this data, and I'm thinking like, hmm, this grass-fed beef has a worse omega-6 to 3 ratio than, than grain-fed beef. Or, or, you know, what sure. are they feeding animals, right? So, yeah. uh, so you, you do see that there too, where uh, there's, there's such, such variation amongst that. And even like in the, in the feedlot systems, mm-hmm. we have some data that says omega-6 to 3 ratio of 8 to 1 or all the way up to 20 to 1. So even amongst the feedlot, it's, 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 it's different. And then amongst the grazing systems, it's also different. Uh, so, yeah, certainly parsing out some of these ideas. But in, typically, you see that the farmers that use, you know, really implement these agroecological methods, yeah, they have an omega-6-3 ratio of like, you know, 1 to 1.2, 1 to 1.5 or something like that. They're very close to 1.1, which is sort of the holy grail, but I, yes. uh, it's what, not, not, you know, typically not reached, but you get very close to it. Yeah. I, I want to thank you because I really think that your work does show that soil health, and I think a lot of this starts with soil health and, and is something that we desperately need to to focus on building. And, and one of the things that I think is so beautiful is that the health of soil is the health of plants, is the health of animals, is the health of us. And, and cyclically, it, it works in that in that way. And so I'm really appreciative of that. Um, what are you working on right now? Is there anything, what have I missed? Is there anything that you really want to share that you're working on right now? Yeah. So we have a big uh, randomized control trial going on, a feeding trial where we feed a quote unquote regenerative diet or an agroecological diet. I like using the word agroecology more so than regenerative, but then no one will know what the hell I'm talking about. So, cause it's hard to, when is something regenerative? No one knows. Uh, at least agroecology, we have an idea of like, you know, biodiversity, integrated crop livestock systems and things like that. Uh, rotational grazing could all follow under agroecology, uh, sort of nature-based farming. But anyway, we're feeding a regenerative, agroecologically grown diet. Um, we're working with uh, various farms on that, mainly the, also the Green Acres Farm. They have a integrated crop livestock system. So they grow 50, 60 different plants over the grazing, over the growing season. They also have animals that are integrated in that system. So we're sourcing a lot from them, which would be a regenerative diet. And then we buy similar products from the grocery store, basically your conventional non-organic produce, presumably coming a lot from, from monocultures. So we are feeding people that for uh, seven weeks and then looking at, at health responses, doing metabolomics on their blood, on the urine, looking at the gut microbiome, getting after the idea to do more regeneratively grown foods have an appreciable effect on, on human health because our initial profiling studies suggest that, yeah, the food is more nutrient-dense, but actually does that improve our health? And um, that, that's something that we're looking at now. And uh, certainly my hypothesis would be is that, you know, a lot of people are consuming the standard American diet. So even the, the sort of our conventionally grown diet is still a pretty healthy diet because it's very low in ultra-processed foods. And then the, the agroecologically grown diet, obviously, also. And... Uh, yeah, we were able to source that, and uh, we were even able to source some of our grains, rice, and things like that, coffee from uh, uh, sort of biodynamic farms, right? It's yeah. even some of the bigger players like, uh, 
general mills or, or uh, and things like that. They have like, you know, oats that come from uh, sort of regenerative oats, they call it, the product, right, that, that come from fields that implant some sort of uh, agroecology. Same with sort of our frozen fruit that we get from uh, uh, farms that have some sort of, uh, yeah, you know, nature-based farming agroecology. So we build an entire diet out of regenerative agriculture, build an entire diet out of conventional agriculture, and seeing what happens to uh, people's inflammatory profiles, uh, their uh, cholesterol, their triglycerides, and uh, also their metabolomics profiles, which would give us an idea of like you know glucose health, glutathione metabolism, which is a major antioxidant, uh, some of the fatty acids that circulate in their blood. So the actual individual types of fat, fatty acids, uh, omega threes, but also these long chain saturated fatty acids. So that's a very exciting project. It's forty people. We're running, uh, or about 36 to 40 people. Um, there's always a few dropouts. That's just the nature of uh, randomized controlled trials. But we're running about uh, 18 to 20 this uh, growing season and another 18 to 20 next year. And uh, so we accumulate uh, uh, an amount of people. And, uh, yeah, that's a project that I'm very excited about. I'm I'm excited about that project, too. I think that's incredibly necessary, and I can't wait to see how how that, what happens to just see how all of that washes out and, and hopefully maybe we can talk again when, when you have that data and look at that. Yeah. I, pleasure, yeah. Yeah. I, I can't thank you enough. I know we're, we're coming up on time and I, I ask everybody this question on the show and I'm curious to ask you and it can be in a bigger sense or just a, at a personal level, but I like to ask people, what does it mean for you to lay the groundwork? And sometimes that's for generations to come and sometimes it's just for your own family. Yeah, I mean, it's for me, it's kind of twofold. I mean, I, I should be 100% honest. I do a lot of this stuff because I want to know it, right? Because I'm very interested in it. So it's a little bit also for selfish reasons, but also, uh, I, you know, it can benefit, of course, uh, a greater society, or at least that's what I hope. Um, if nothing else, I had, uh, had fun doing it. But yeah, a lot of these things where I got in, into this uh, is like, I wanted to know about what grass-fed meat and milk, what is contained, right? And uh, uh, if this is healthier for my family or, or not and, uh, and and things like that just, just because of sheer interest. So that's sort of laying, what laying the groundwork means for me because, yes, as, as humans, we have some influence in our lifetime. But there's this, uh, this, 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 this saying is that, you know, the, the world's a mess. It's always been a mess. But the best thing we can do is straighten out our own lives. And if everyone does that, then the world may no longer be a mess. But I also don't have the, uh, if you think about it sometimes, and it's, it's like if you step back, our lifetime where, you know, such a minuscule impact on everything, right? Like in a blink of an eye. So we can make a difference and we should, but we can make the most difference in sort of our, our you know, our, our local community and our, our environment. And uh, I think that's, uh, that's first and foremost what we should uh, what we should go for. And that's, I think, laying the groundwork, what it, what it means to me, at least. Oh, thank you. That was a beautiful, perfect answer. Uh, where can, where can people find you? And we'll have links to all of this in the show notes. I'm... Yeah. So my, uh, my Twitter handle is at fanfleetphd. So my last name, fanfleet, followed by letters PhD. My Google Scholar profile, I find most of my publications. You can just type my name in and then Utah State University or Duke University, which is where I was before, uh, You'll, you'll find me and then, yeah, I try to do podcasts and webinars on a regular basis, such as these. And it's great to uh, have uh, uh, the opportunity to talk about our work. So, 
you probably YouTube my name and then uh, yeah, find some of the previous work. Also, given some webinars or actually go through all this data in a in a sort of a slideshow. Um, so. And uh, like I said, my, our papers are always open access. I try to write them up in a way that uh, non-scientists can understand them, at least, because, uh, you know, otherwise, uh, what's the what's the use, right? Science should, should to an extent, be accessible for everyone. Yes. Um, so those are the easiest way of, of finding me, yeah. Great. And we'll have links to all of those things. I want to thank you for the open access. That makes a really big difference. I know I spend a lot of time reading papers, and a lot of them are, exist behind a paywall. And so thank you. I didn't realize that it took money on your end. And thank you for also exposing that little piece of things. And just, I really appreciate that and all of your work. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Jake. And uh, yes. it's great to connect with people that are doing the work on the ground. I always jokingly say is that, uh, well, not jokingly, it's true. It's that uh, my, uh, what I do is a lot of just, you know, studying in the lab what, what farmers are doing on the ground and evaluating that. And hopefully I can provide some guidance and, and you know, put some data behind it and then maybe move the needle in, in towards, you know, more agroecological systems. But this work would not be possible without uh, without farmers. And uh, so I'm very grateful of that. And my best days at work are usually when I'm out at a farm uh, collecting <laughs> samples. And it's a nice little, little break from the, the hecticness of, uh, of, of academia sometimes. And uh, and, uh, and connecting with farmers and, you know, talking to farmers, I learn a lot too, uh, always on the, and it always gives me new ideas. It's like, oh, so you're kind of observing death. Well, we should study that, right? And that's, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, if that's indeed the case or not, I mean, we always keep an open idea. I must say nine out of 10 times what the farmer uh, sees is, is something or observes empirically is something we then find in the, in the lab too. But sometimes we find something interesting that, uh, Maybe very unexpected, and and we live in a day in an age of science and data, right? Everyone wants to be showing the data, and you know at least uh, we're, uh, we're we're trying to evaluate uh, whether those practices are indeed more uh, sustainable or or not more sustainable, of course, right? Or if they improve nutrient density or diminish nutrient density. So that's uh, what we're what we're studying. Well, I, I think it's great and I think it adds a lot to this space and I think it also adds a lot towards this goal of, I mean, for me, both nutrient density and biodiversity. And I think being in service to those things, you're, you're doing amazing work. So thank you and, and just thank you for taking the time. You're welcome. Okay. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Groundwork Podcast. If what you heard today resonated with you, may I ask that you share it with your friends or leave us a review? This helps others find Groundwork. If you're looking for more, you can find us at groundworkcollective.com and at Groundwork Collective on Instagram. I would like to give a very special thank you to China and Seth Kent of the band All Right, All Right for clips from the beautiful song Over the Edge from their album, The Crucible. You can find them at All Right, All Right on Instagram and wherever you listen to music.